Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 26th uh, on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, the day after the Oscars, a very weird Oscars for those of you who watched it. Um, no Man Land ran off, if that's the right word, with most of the top honors. It was, um, it was given the best picture uh, by, by the Academy, uh, which warmed my heart in a couple of ways. Firstly, of course, we've already had uh, the excellent writer Jessica Bruder on our show, uh, who's original book, No Man's Land, the movie was based on. And I also think that as so often with the Oscars, they are a, a, be a bellwether for our culture, for how we're thinking about the world and particularly America. Uh, the movie and the book is about the crisis of public space and our longing for nature. For those of you watching here, we have an image of, 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 of a woman featured in the book who lived in her van on public space and was continually chased by the authorities. Uh, this issue, this crisis of public space, is one that we've dealt with in all sorts of ways in the show, not just in terms of uh, public land. Uh, we had Candace Taylor on the show recently talking about the way in which public space has, of course, been um, uh, discriminated against African-Americans. Uh, we had Heather McGee on the show, uh, the author of The Some of Us, who talks about the way in which the very idea of the public um, has been racialized in America. It's not just race, though. Uh, it's also education. We had the uh, educationist Derek W. Black on the show talking about the way in which uh, even the school in America has been privatized. Uh, and uh, last but certainly not least, um, we had Talia Stroud on the show from the University of Texas talking about the crisis of public space online and the need to design the Internet to function like a public park. So the issue of the public and of nature has been very central to this show, and I'm really thrilled today to address it straight on, particularly the day after um, Nomadland won the Oscar. Uh, Phoebe S.K. Young uh, has a new book out. She's an academic uh, in Colorado. A new book out on, uh, on, on public space as camping grounds. The name of the book is Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy movement, and indeed, it's more than the Occupy movement. It's also uh, COVID times. Um, Phoebe, that was quite a long introduction. I hope I, I won't talk too much for the rest of the interview. Uh, you have a little section at the end of the book on Nomad Land. Do you agree with me? Do you think that the public acclaim, the embrace of this movie and, the, and Jessica Bruder's book reflects? Um, not only our longing for nature, but a changing conception of what nature is? Uh, 
Yes, uh, Andrew, thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here, and, and especially after yeah the, the big news of, of last night from the Oscars, which I, I did not watch. Um, and I actually, uh, to be fully honest, haven't seen the movie Nomadland yet, but of course read the book when it first came out a number of years ago. Um, and absolutely, I think Jessica Bruder's um, sort of conception of, of thinking about the ways in which Americans have continued to try to connect with the outdoors, um, whether that be out of uh, a sense of joy or desire for leisure, um, but also out of necessity, right? It's become a, a logical strategy um, when other kinds of strategies for living um, are less possible, right? And so these things get mixed together and it's it's kind of hard to tease them apart. And I think that's that's part of what Nomadland uh, tells us and is, is kind of the brilliance of that work is, is to show how complex that story is. Uh, Phoebe, uh, alongside the, the drama of Nomadland, you begin your book with a different kind of drama, a confrontation between Jonathan Jarvis, I'm not sure many of our viewers and listeners will know who he is, the director of the National Park Service, uh, talking to, uh, I think his name is, is it uh, Trent Gowdy? Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's become known on YouTube, uh, which is always uh, thinking of things in a, in a, in a sporting uh, metaphor as Gowdy versus Jonathan Jarvis. Why do you why did you begin the book with with Jarvis and uh, and Gaudi? I began with that story um, about the congressional hearing over the Occupy movement, uh, particularly in Washington, D.C., because it does the same kind of thing, that it really exemplifies all the complexities and that camping, uh, as simple as it seems, right, that we think about all of those classic images that come to our mind when you think of what camping is, um, and that Occupy hearing and the argument between Trey Gowdy and Jonathan Jarvis, um, or rather their inability to kind of uh, figure out uh, the ways in which camping can be more than just that simple definition um, really suggested and you know, sort of opened the page for the story I wanted to tell, um, that camping is, is more than what we tend to think of it in, you know, when looking at an, an REI catalog, for example. Um, thinking of things in Hollywood terms, um, Phoebe, which I unfortunately, uh, always seem to do. Um, was this confrontation between uh, Jarvis in his National Park uniform and the Republican Gaudi, was it one between good and evil when it comes to public space? No, I wouldn't characterize it that way. I think the sense that they're both struggling from kind of different definitions of not just what camping was, but what sort of public access to the outdoors, um, what protest meant, um, what was a right and what was a privilege. Um, and while I think, you know, we can certainly look at uh, Gaudi's insistence on wanting to only see camping as a recreational form and that that was the only way of camping can sort of look at that and, and think of that as narrow-minded. But 
he comes by that from you know a half century or more in federal investment in promoting recreational camping, right, as kind of a, a foundation of, of connecting to the nation. Um, and so his kind of frustration that Occupy was doing something different with their tents, right, that he, he came by that in a way that uh, testifies to the strength of the investment in recreational camping over uh, particularly the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, and, and, and you do approach this, uh, you are a historian very much as a historian. I was intrigued in the book to see McPherson Square and Occupy DC get such a star billing. Um, connect Occupy DC and uh, these images of, of, of uh, people camping in McPherson Square with the history of public land in America. So... There were many Occupy sites, and I could have chosen a lot of them, but the one in D.C. Um, it is not only the one that uh, sort of rose to the level of a congressional hearing, but also exemplifies kind of right the iconic public spaces uh, in the country, right, right in the heart of the Capitol, where we've seen so many memorable protests uh, over the decades. So Occupy's choice to camp uh, in these uh, iconic public spaces um, resonated with not only previous encamped protests in 1971, 1968, 1930. Um, but also tapped into that real sense in uh, you know, U.S. history back to the founding of the country about claiming a piece of land. Right, that there is something that's that sort of taps into fundamental understandings of the nation uh, about sort of occupying a piece of ground. Um, now, occupiers themselves were very clearly uh, articulating that what they were doing was not camping in the assumed recreational version, um, but that they were petitioning right for redress of grievances uh, and also sort of tapping into those founding documents. And so, by connecting um, those central kind of tenants of uh, our uh, nation's uh, founding and uh, the ground itself, um, the camping became kind of very potent in a way that that uh, other movements um, didn't always become that way. But of course, Occupy, um, the, the images, as you're suggesting, of McPherson Square are very different from the Lockean foundations of American uh, notions of land. We had the English writer Simon Winchester on the mm -hmm. show recently, whose critique of Lockeanism seems to speak also of people rethinking our relationship with land. Um, do you think that Occupy was in itself a challenge to the idea of privatized land? Yes, I believe that it was. I mean, I think in part by... Uh, you know, the original Occupy installation uh, in Zuccotti uh, Square in New York, which is one of these really strange um, mixed public and private spaces, right, was trying to make a claim that these spaces should be uh, less privatized uh, and that, that sort of arguing that the financiers were even trying to claim pieces of, of public land and sky uh, and to sort of take that back. And I think that was definitely a part of uh, the Occupy movement. Uh, I really like this book, uh, Phoebe. I think mostly because you're such a good historian and you're not really taking sides. Uh, you, you, you argue that um, there is 
two ways of thinking about the value of public nature when it comes to outdoor spaces. Uh, the first you suggest is, is rooted in the way in which uh, Americans are able to, and I'm quoting you here, uh, escape the central struggles of the nation's history. It's a way of establishing neutral ground. It, it's, talk a little bit more about that meaning of public space. So I think that's how we often think of getting back to nature, right? As getting away from it all, of a chance to kind of exit uh, many of the political uh, quandaries and issues uh, that we might have. And, and actually what I'm trying to argue in the book is that um, even though we think that that's partly what we're doing, that in fact, the uh, structure of doing these kinds of camping activities is inherently built into those kind of political um, struggles and issues. And so we're not really escaping. Nature kind of allows us to feel like we can, can take a step back from our daily lives. Uh, and I think that that is absolutely true in, in many cases, but that when you look more broadly at uh, the history and, and kind of structure of, of these kinds of things, that it's it's absolutely intertwined uh, from you know Lockean notions uh, through Occupy, uh, is that sort of acting on and in public space is, is not getting out uh, or escaping those central struggles, but in fact, participating in them uh, in a variety of ways. And that, of course, is, is, is your second definition. Um, uh, you, you suggest that uh, ideas about, and I'm quoting you here, ideas about the social contract were built, were baked into the founding of the United States itself. And from the start, public nature was key uh, to those negotiations. So the idea of the contract is the, the social contract is the second theoretical underpinning of, of, of public space. Absolutely. And, and I'm, you know, not the first person, obviously, to um, suggest that, but to think about something like recreational camping in, in relation to that social contract um, is something I think we haven't uh, done in the same way. Uh, and that public nature in that sense of, of how, how do we use uh, this land? How do we decide that it, when and how it becomes public and then when and how it becomes private um, and occupied? I mean, you can sort of trace those um, questions and discussions throughout many decades. Um, and so that's, that's kind of why I see it as, as connected to these uh, really central uh, ideas like the social contract, like um, uh, property uh, and uh, the like. Phoebe, let's do some history. You're a historian, so lead us through these different historical moments. Uh, you argue, and again, I'm quoting you, Thomas Jefferson understood this framework, uh, which you've just talked about, as central to the political culture of the, of, of the United States, of the new United States. Is this Jeffersonian notion of land as an outsider? It was assumed that Jefferson is the the founding and central figure in American conceptions about the land. Is Jefferson the heart of it? To start, do we need to understand how Jefferson thought about nature? 
That's a great question uh, for a colonial historian, I think. Um, you know, I my understanding of this early period is that, you know, Jefferson, along with many of his colleagues, right, in that founding generation, um, very much uh, both adopted and modified, you know, John Locke's uh, beliefs about mixing your labor with the land, uh, and that that was what produced property, which could be the basis for government, right? And that kind of political philosophy was uh, a key to this organization. Now, I could have used a different um, uh, U.S. Uh, founder. They, many of them shared uh, these beliefs. Um, his Jefferson statement that, right, the people who labor in the earth are, are you know, the virtuous uh, uh, citizens and that that was the connection that he wanted to make made it a particularly um, ripe place to begin. Um, but it was certainly a widely shared belief. And so Jefferson's particular beliefs about nature itself, I think, were, were less particular to him uh, and more shared among the generation. Uh, Phoebe, you uh, and I talked a little bit about race earlier. You remind us uh, that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the great uh, African-American writer and thinker, critic, um, remarked as far back as 1920 on the particular equation of whiteness with the ownership of the earth. Given Jefferson's own deeply checkered relationship with uh, African-Americans and slavery. Is it any coincidence, perhaps, that this Jeffersonian notion of land ownership is so mixed up with slavery and hypocrisy and discrimination? No, not at all. I think, you know, this the notions of ownership uh, from the get-go, right, are, are in part built on this broader uh, sense of hierarchy and claiming, right, of who owns the land and then who has, you know, the, the rights to figure decide how it's worked. Um, and so ownership is, you know, a, a really interesting and uh, topic and has a lot of um, these issues built into them, right? It's not a neutral notion. When I say that that these Lockean notions of, of property and mixing your labor with the land um, are baked into the founding, that too means that those kind of contradictions uh, around uh, sort of lack of uh, equal access to that concept um, are also built into that founding. And so, I mean, that's what, you know, Du Bois's uh, 1920 book, Dark Water, where that quote comes from, is just so fascinating because he he really sort of gets and, and sort of brings this out into the open in ways that, that are, you know, maybe more hidden in that that particular quote comes uh, as a kind of answer to a rhetorical question that he's asking about, well, why, why would somebody desire whiteness? Uh, and his answer is that it it is sort of it comes to him as that it's a given that whiteness um, is the ownership of the earth forever and ever, right? And so that this is the sort of illuminates the idea that this concept is fundamentally um, tied up. These two concepts, whiteness and ownership, are fundamentally tied up with each other. Yeah, and you you talk a little bit about um, Black Lives Matter movement and their mm -hmm. different conception of the earth. Perhaps we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, a few months ago, I had the travel writer David Gessner on the show, who, who wrote a book, a really interesting book, I don't know if you've seen it, about retracing Teddy Roosevelt's steps around America and his embrace of land. For those people watching, we have an image of, of the great Teddy Roosevelt overlooking, I guess, one of his uh, iconic 
natural images in America. Uh, how did Roosevelt in the late 19th, early 20th century reshape the discussion about public land? So Teddy Roosevelt, absolutely critical figure in this story, although I don't talk a great deal about him in the book because so much uh, wonderful uh, uh, research and, and work has been done on him. But in the sense of making the argument to establish permanent preserves of public land that would not be converted into private property, which of course had been the role of public nature and, and the federal government um, for most of the years leading up to that, right? Public nature was designed to be uh, given away, made available for Americans to claim and farm, right? This is the Homestead Act uh, and its precursors. I mean, so this Teddy is what you call uh, back to nature, right? The back to the land movements, which you say peaked in the first decades of the 20th century. Absolutely, right? So people who have moved to cities in the late 19th century, cities are growing, uh, industrial work is growing. Uh, and so people feel like they were losing their connection uh, to uh, nature and to the, the land. And so uh, there, there are this kind of growth of back to the land uh, advocates, right? Go back, get a farm, leave the city. So very few people actually do that. It's, it doesn't become a mass phenomenon. Um, some do, of course. Um, but I think what you see with, with Teddy Roosevelt in that era is uh, the a sort of shift in mindset about, okay, some of these pieces of land need to be preserved, um, not for people to actually go back and farm the land, but to go and, and sort of get in touch with um, these spectacular places of nature that have, um, you know, kind of sublime uh, views and uh, uh, landmarks and, and landscapes uh, that that sort of should be preserved in perpetuity. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt is is the one I think you know again many people with him, um, but he is uh, leading that charge. Land then as a form of nostalgia, uh, a sort of uh, a, a Rousseauan longing for something that has disappeared. Uh, land then is it? By nature, do you think our embrace of land and of public space in the last hundred years, is it by definition conservative? Um, that is a really good question. Um, and let me tell you sort of how I think about that. Um, I think it can be what you make of it, right? I, I think land is nostalgia, uh, is certainly part of driving this. Um, but I also think that there are more than one way to connect to the land. And so I don't think that it is automatically um, a conservative or conservationist um, or uh, radical or progressive necessarily. It could be any one of those things. I really like, uh, Phoebe, one of the things about the book I really liked was um, a reminder of the New Deal um, uh, and uh, FDR's, um, FDR's embrace um, of uh, a new social contract. Um, uh, you, you, you write, the, the New Deal era solidified a distinctly different relationship between citizens and the government and camping showcased the updated role for public nature. So um, FDR didn't think of land in a nostalgic sense, did he? He saw it in a, in a, in a progressive way, as a way of, 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 of reviving or renewing or reestablishing our social contract, our civic identities. Absolutely. I mean, 
FDR, as as with many of the things uh, uh, that he did during that epochal time in the New Deal, um, was capable of thinking multiple things about the land at the same time. And and there's definitely some nostalgic aspect there too, and, and much effort being put on trying to keep farmers on their land, right, paying them to stay on the farm. Um, so there was that aspect as well. But what we also see, right, is the Civilian Conservation Corps. And uh, one of the signature policies that came in the first hundred days of the New Deal about rehabilitating and making these public lands uh, more accessible, um, more within easier reach um, for most Americans to be able to connect with uh, the sense of uh, the nation, um, with the government itself to access those government services, um, and to have, as, as he would have thought, a, a kind of sense of, of wholesome recreation um, to, to, to both get away from the struggles of the Great Depression, as well as to uh, find uh, some satisfaction in, in meaningful uh, work uh, in, in the sort of context of recreation. Let's fast forward from the New Deal to the COVID pandemic. You suggest that COVID um, has, again, uh, re redesigned, reinvented some of the debate but you also about public land. But you also say that uh, the, 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 the pandemic enthusiasm for camping uh, was actually, which, which is happening today, uh, began in 2009 uh, with the Great Recession. Um, and then was also stimulated in the fall of 2013 with the federal government shutdown. So talk briefly, um, Phoebe, about why there's such a renewal in, in the interest of camping and in public land uh, over the last 15 or 20 years. I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting that, that came out last summer uh, with the pandemic was was the sort of declaring of, of outdoor recreation as as a necessity, which to me, of course, as a historian, was was quite interesting to see this um, become that way. Because in 1918, um, and I'm not a scholar of the, the 1918 flu, but um, while people were certainly encouraged to do outdoor things, outdoor recreation as a category um, wasn't declared essential. Um, and so I do see that declaration in 2020 as as both the result of this very long history, but also since the resurgence, uh, really since the Great De uh, Recession uh, in 2009, that before then uh, people had been kind of predicting the sort of decline and, and not death of camping, but that it would become much more of a niche uh, kind of activity. Um, and so we see it uh, becoming sort of developing in multiple ways um, over the past uh, 15 years, both as a kind of uh, lower cost, right, affordable vacation uh, for people, but also as uh, a way of defining one's kind of identity and lifestyle, right? And part of that is through sort of burgeoning new consumer products. Right. We, uh, you have a great image uh, in from the book from REI, which is, to be fair to REI, a cooperative uh, with the uh, exclamation, we must camp. And you also talk intriguingly in the book about a New York Times piece of a nature deficit disorder suggesting that we all need nature, that it's really in the public interest. 
Right. So one of the big arguments that has emerged since uh, the, you know, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years has been about a biological need for nature, that somehow it's it's built into our biologies, our brains, uh, that we need to have kind of leisurely time in nature uh, and that there's sort of a burgeoning field of, of neurological studies um, about this uh, and other uh, things devoted to, to thinking about this. And so I think it's partly about uh, that, you know, of people feeling like that it's it's not just anecdotal that maybe going out on a hike or going uh, camping relieves stress, but that that there's you know some medical uh, research to back that up, um, and so that has definitely been gaining in popularity um, as as a draw for these kind of outdoor activities. And of course, the intense politicization of this. You have an image from the book of the uh, pro so-called protectors for the Dakota Access pipeline. We haven't talked much about the, uh, the global warming crisis, but I'm assuming that that's compounding and, 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 and making the debate about public land ever more central to many people's thinking. Absolutely. I think you're completely right about that. Uh, and the sense it taps into, like, as you were saying earlier, the sense of nostalgia of, like, well, we better enjoy these lands before they change too much on us, right? I've, I've heard uh, uh, folks saying that, that it's it's not going to, you know, the rivers aren't going to be the same anymore, so we have to go and, and connect with them. And there's often been a, a sense that doing outdoor recreation is, you know, more likely to make one a, an environmentalist um, or to realize uh, these things. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that's a, a lockstep uh, truth that you go from one to the other. Um, but certainly many people feel that by physically connecting with nature, that it is also kind of priming their awareness and, and desire to do something about uh, uh, the, the challenge of climate change. Uh, Phoebe, in, um, in the... Uh... Gaudi versus Jonathan Jarvis confrontation that you talk about at the beginning. Uh, I think Jarvis's justification in Congress in some ways was that, uh, and, 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 and you refer to this in the book, uh, that, 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 that the land was democratizing, that everyone can have access to it. Uh, but of course, in America, increasingly riven by inequality, this isn't the case. And I, I thought one of the other intriguing things you did in the book was... Um, was remind us of the muddying of the urban and the agricultural. You, you talk in the book about uh, cities like San Francisco, where I'm speaking to you before, uh, from, uh, concurrently moved to support outdoor encampments, opening safe sleeping villages. Here we have an image of one of these safe sleeping villages. But these reflect, of course, the increasing inequality of life in America and these safe sleeping cities in reality are shanty towns for the homeless in a city of enormous wealth. Um, this muddying of the urban and the rural uh, and the way in which cities have been brought into the debate, is it something that we should be concerned with? I don't know what you mean entirely by concerned with, but it's absolutely uh, something that I think the pandemic revealed uh, is the sort of complexities uh, of dealing with uh, many of these situations. And it's it's one of the reasons why I, for example, am, am somewhat skeptical of the nature deficit disorder kind of uh, uh, framing that there is a biological need uh, for nature in that that kind of assumes that we all experience the outdoors in the same way and that it brings benefits to us all in the 
the same way. So, you know, to say to an unsheltered person who is living in a safe sleeping village, right, uh, uh, during the pandemic to say, well, at least you're getting your dose of, of nature, of being outdoors, it sort of rings hollow, right? So in this sense of that we prioritize some kinds of being in nature and some people for being in those spaces and other for others, it is more problematic, right? And, and that's true for the folks in Nomadland, right? In, in that kind of story as well, is that access to nature uh, and sort of enjoyment of nature means something different. It doesn't mean that they don't enjoy being outdoors, um, but that it's it's a very different proposition, uh, obviously, uh, from going camping uh, to relieve stress from your uh, job these days sitting, you know, chained to Zoom uh, and from being forced to do that because you just literally have few, very few other useful choices. I'm glad, Phoebe, that you've taken your historian's cap off for a moment and and taken some positions on this. At the end of this excellent book, you suggest that, uh, and I'm quoting you again, camping, recreational or otherwise is neither the problem nor the cure. Um, instead, a careful look at its history suggests that it serves as a bellwether for changes in the social contract and how we envision the role of public nature, which I think you do in an outstanding way. But again, keeping your historian's cap off as a conclusion, where would you like to see this debate go? What, what is missing? What, what do we need to rethink in uh, public space when it comes to, to, to land and camping um, as we move on in a post-COVID America? Well, I think for starters, we need to stop thinking about nature as the thing out there, right? That we can escape our lives to go to and that it's supposed to sort of stay the way it is in, in a sort of pristine, uh, untouched way. Uh, and start thinking about the ways we share space right? And what those kind of natural elements of the outdoors are and how they mix with the human elements, with the built environment, right? And to think about uh, parks as a movement in urban parks, uh, to think about sort of planning for shared uh, use, right? And to think, sort of take for uh, a given that unsheltered people are going to use public space. And so to plan for them rather than to wish them away, Right. Uh, and to, to think about uh, the ways in which um, public spaces and in the outdoors um, can be grounds for bringing us together, even though they have also in our history, right, showed ways in which we are uh, you know, have different experiences, right? The unequal access to them. Um, and it, in, in some cases in our very recent history. So thinking about it in terms of shared space rather than this sort of perfect nature out there we need to preserve is, is where I would start. Well, there you have it. Phoebe brings, brings us back to my introduction uh, about the centrality of the debate about public space and the need for it um, in contemporary America. Her new book, Camping Grounds, Public Nature in American Life from the Civil War to the Occupy Movement um, is both an extremely good academic treatment of this subject, but also a broad and, and highly accessible narrative about our changing conceptions of, of public space in America. I want to congratulate you, Phoebe, for an excellent book. Uh, you are in Colorado, uh, I think Boulder, Colorado at the moment in these strange times. Most of us still can't go out into public space. So all we can do are read books like yours. What else should people be reading in addition to, um, to Camping Grounds? 
Um, well, I would I'll, I'll recommend a couple that that are, are fairly new and 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 on my uh, bookshelf. Um, one is by John Coleman. Um, it's called Nature Shock. Um, I can't quite remember the subtitle. Uh, I think it's something about getting lost in America, um, but it's about those sort of experiences of of kind of being, you know, finding yourself in a in a uh, not very inviting <laughs> space and being shocked by nature. Um, and the other one is one that just came out last week um, uh, on Earth Day, which is Jenny Price's "Stop Saving the Planet." Um, which is uh, the subtitle is an environmentalist manifesto, which is very much about this concept of um, stop treating nature as this thing out there. And let's think about uh, how to uh, work together um, to address climate change outside of this framing of, of save the planet. Well, Phoebe Young, both of those authors and books need to be, I think, uh, on the show. We'll have to get them. I want to thank you for a really uh panoramic uh, conversation, just like American nature. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to be here.